This podcast is brought to you by the Dunfield Retirement Residence, a casually elegant retirement community located at Young and Eglinton in the heart of Midtown Toronto. Customized living options complement your independent, active lifestyle. Learn more at thedunfield.com. That's what it sounded like Saturday night in Toronto when police were called to control a small group of pro-Palestinian demonstrators outside an Orthodox synagogue and high school, or Chaim. The protest was held because of a lecture being given inside by a rep from an Israeli settlers advocacy organization called Regavim. The group was founded 16 years ago by Betzalel Smotrich. It goes to court to block what it considers illegal Palestinian construction projects in the West Bank and Bedouin ones in the Negev. It wants to reclaim every inch of what it calls Judea and Samaria for Jews. Smotrich is an extreme right-wing Israeli politician who's head of Israel's religious Zionist party, and he will likely take a top cabinet post if Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister-designate, manages to form a government, maybe even as the minister in charge of all building on the West Bank. So while some critics say that sounds like putting the fox in charge of the hen house, Smotrich is just one of the issues setting off alarm bells for Canadian Jews, especially from the left and progressive movements. Netanyahu has until December 21st to finalize the cabinet. And thanks to his deal with six right-wing and ultra-right-wing religious parties, the cabinet will include Smotrich, who is also against LGBTQ rights and Arabs and wants to weaken the power of the Supreme Court, plus Itamar Ben-Gavir, who's been convicted of inciting violence against Arabs and will likely be appointed head of the police, and Arya Derry of the Shas party, who's already been convicted of tax evasion and served time in jail. It's going to heighten what is already the most divisive issue in the Jewish community today, which is Israel. What do you do about it? How do you talk about it? How do you engage it? There's really no unanimity on Israel at all inside the, inside the family, especially if there's violent extremists who are ministers of the government. How do you, how do you support that? I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Monday, December the 19th, 2022. Welcome to the CJN Daily for the first day of Hanukkah. We're a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropia. Benjamin Netanyahu says he's in charge, not the coalition partners, and he predicts his new cabinet ministers will all have to walk back some of their most extreme plans. Netanyahu insists Israel won't become a halachic state. But a great topic of concern for diaspora Jews are possible changes to Israel's law of return that would make it apply only to those who were born to a Jewish mother, according to Orthodox religious law. So what will Israel look like after this week? To discuss all this and more, I've assembled a panel of three Canadian Jewish leaders to share their concerns. So joining me now are Ben Moraine from the New Israel Fund of Canada, Miriam Perlman with the Reform Jewish Community, Artsa, the Reform Zionist Movement, and Shimon Koffler-Fogel, the CEO of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, joins now from Jerusalem. Good Thank to be you. with Thank you. you. So let's just quickly do a lightning round. I'll start with you, Ben. What is your group's main two two, three concerns about uh, what is happening in Israel potentially with the new government? 
Our group is the, the Newsroom Fund of Canada's purpose has been to protect and advance democracy and equality in Israel. We fund projects over there led by Israelis of all kinds of backgrounds working on democracy, equality, you know, shared society between Jews and Arabs, anti-racism, opposing the occupation, you know, women's rights, the whole gamut. So to us, this new government is a, it's a really a whole new ball game, considering how extreme it is and the players involved. The top two concerns that we have are Netanyahu is not only included bringing Jewish supremacists, ultra-nationalists, and some violent extremists into the government, he's also handing control to those people of, say, state-armed forces like Border Patrol and police. And, and whatever issues we thought were safe in the past, say, like the rights of any non-Orthodox Jewish people, or not to mention any of those, say, like Palestinian citizens or Palestinian residents of the territories who aren't Jewish, isn't safe anymore. We can't take for granted that those things won't see huge and, and detrimental changes and that Israel's democracy won't be permanently or hugely wounded in this time. And Miriam, for the reform movement? It's pretty easy for me, I must say, as we work closely with the Israel reform movement in Israel um, and IMPJ and with Iraq, which Ben knows well, Israel Religious Action Center. So our, our goals, our primary goals are to grow liberal progressive Judaism in Israel. We say that there's more than one way to be Jewish. And of course, all of these threats, they're very worrisome to, it's already been always a fight and Iraq has been wonderful in the Supreme Court, getting us rights for rabbis, reform rabbis to sometimes get paid, most, most don't, for women's rights, for all the things that Ben just said. We, we don't just work to grow as progressive Judaism in Israel. And, and the congregations, and we partner, Temple Sana, you mentioned, we're, we're partnered with two very important congregations in Israel to help build them, but also all the 52 congregations now in Israel, reform congregations. So the whole progressive liberal Judaism in Israel, if we're going to be, a, if it's a homeland for all of us, we need to feel home there. And all these threats to progressive Judaism and all that, of course, halachic, a halachic state, God forbid, that we could have, that's the top worry. But the second worry is what Ben was saying, because we are also about a just society and about a democracy. So the Supreme Court issue, which I'm sure you're going to address, you know, is is, uh, is a threat. The um, de facto annexation, God forbid, <laughs> I just keep saying God forbid. So those are the three top worries, I think. that And, and the, you know, 2002 was the last intifada. This past year has been more violence and more deaths than um, since then. And we're, the fear is that we're going into another very violent time. And we know what that means. Thank you so much. And uh, Shimon, from Siege's point of view, what are the top issues from uh, this side of the this side of the Atlantic that worry you? Just quickly, two lightning questions. We are concerned about a sense of inclusion uh, that all Jews uh, in the diaspora feel that they are not just stakeholders uh, but partners uh, in building and strengthening the state uh, and policies that might challenge the ability of everybody to feel equal access, equal validation is something that has to be of concern to us in Canada. And then more broadly, I don't think that we can ignore uh, the possibility that certain policies that might be pursued will challenge the relationship on the bilateral and multilateral level between Israel and other countries uh, globally, and that Israel's standing may be at some risks. All right, let's pursue a couple of the things we've brought up. Let's, you mentioned halachic state. You said, God forbid. So in Israel, 
there are certain comments and campaign pledges in the news that certainly gives people pause, specifically the law of return. Let's start with that. What are you worried about with the changes that could come in to change that this basic it's called the basic law uh, of Israel for the law of return? So, well, uh, well, go ahead, please. Okay, thank you. I'll I'll just because you'll have more to say about it. But just from the progressive liberal Judaism side, as you know, there's you know, a million Russians came and many of them have, con- they have not wanted to convert through the um, halacha, through the orthodox way, and they have converted uh, in ways, or they're not converted, and they will not be recognized. So the, the threat to so many that are already there in terms of being recognized as full citizens, not just uh, with full rights, plus more that would want to come. Sorry, Shimon, I'll let you carry on from there. No, I'll just, uh, flowing from what you said, the law of return has been the subject of pretty intense debate for decades. A significant segment of the Russians who have come to Israel really have no uh, desire or intention of embracing Judaism um, uh, as as a core part of of their identity. Uh, The real question in this regard is, what is their status? Um, What is the basis on which uh, they would be allowed um, access to essentially fast-tracking uh, citizenship uh, in Israel and so forth. Uh, and I think that that's something to be worked out. But Ellen, the one word of caution that I would offer for all of this discussion is, you know, in my experience, and I've been around for, for quite a while, um, there is a significant difference between uh, the rhetoric that uh, characterizes campaigns and what happens during a time of governance. I don't want to be dismissive of some of the concerns that people have articulated and that I share, for the record. But um, I think that it would be a mistake to prejudge how things are going to fall out once a government is formed, uh, once they are faced with the challenges uh, of actually governing. uh, Because the range of options is much narrower when you're in government than when you're seeking to form a government. Uh, so I think that we may be surprised that many of the initiatives that have been identified with some of the uh, more challenging uh, actors will actually not move forward uh, because there are so many other layers. It's not just about the Jews. Uh, It's not just about the paradox of us in the diaspora uh, and Israelis in Israel who have expressed their democratic right to select the parties and the governments they want. There are other players. Netanyahu is committed to developing relations with Saudi Arabia. Um, That could be at risk. Uh, depending on on who does what. The Palestinians, the Jordanians are also stakeholders. And then there's the big elephant in the room, the United States, which has certain expectations of the values that will be reflected in in Israeli government policy and ensuring that they align with with America's um, sense of, of, of inclusion and equity. But let's get back to the, the law of return. Just to our listeners, maybe you're not familiar with it. I had to check it again. There's a law that allows any Jew to come as long as they have a grandparent that is, was Jewish, even if they themselves are not practicing. And that was a change done in the 70s. It's been a fundamental pl- pillar, a basic law. And now the talk is that they will get rid of that. And so how would that impact reform conservative people from Canada, for example, who want to make Aliyah? Well, but Ellen, so the law of return 
um, isn't the only way to secure citizenship. It's a fast track way. You know, I'll put it on record that I think a year from now we will see that there has been no significant change in the application of the law of return. Hmm. All right. Well, we'll put a donut on that. I would agree with Shimon that there is a lot of other more immediate worries than than that one about playing out. Yeah, I'll add to this, if I may, that um, I think we'd be naive to trust any promises that Netanyahu makes. Um, Benny Gantz learned that the hard way. I don't think his coalition partners are giving him any benefit, any trust. Um, I think they're going to hold his get-out-of-jail-free card, any promises that he'll manage to escape his corruption trials for as long as they can. Because I think um, as soon as he gets that, I think the coalition finds itself on some weak leg. Um, I, I think when we talk about the change of, say, the Kotel, reformer conservative... Uh, Let's just explain for a second. The change of the Kotel means that there's some movement that it would only allow orthodox prayers at the Kotel and nobody else could go. That's one thing on the table. Yeah, go ahead. But just, these are hugely symbolic issues for those of us in the diaspora. And I think, you know, the the messages of any significant changes there are... are just that they're discussing them, even like Galid, um, what's his name? Um, forgive me. The reform rabbi who is a minister, a member of Knesset. Gilad Kariv, a dear friend and hero of mine. A very close partner of the New Israel Fund in Israel, as well as the, you know, our, all of our reform partners. Just talking about it is damaging enough. You know, it's, it's provoking an already moving conversation in the diaspora about what does it mean to quote unquote support Israel. Who are you supporting in Israel? What are you supporting in Israel? And I think it's very divisive. It's going to be, you can't obviously support violent extremists. And I think for young Jews especially, young Jews especially who we know from recent studies are more liberal than their parents and their grandparents. Um, Canadian Jews too, American Jews too, UK Jews too, young Jews too, Australia, everywhere it's true in the diaspora. They're going to look to their elders, look to their community for some sense of leadership on this. And if they see their leaders their institutions, their communities, their synagogues sort of become mealy-mouthed apologists for Jewish extremism, I think they're going to be, they're going to be upset. They're going to be disturbed, and rightly so. Love of Israel is one thing, but support for policies is another. So, Shimon, somebody was mentioning earlier, and I want you to start this one, if I could, when we talked about violence, maybe another intifada. I, I heard that one of the ministers was on an interview saying, quote, if one Israeli mother cries, Versus a thousand Palestinian mothers cry, I'll take a thousand Palestinian mothers. I'm putting that as a sort of a lead into how worried are you and your organization about the potential for even more crackdowns on Arabs and Palestinians in the territories going forward with these new ministers in charge? I, we should say it's Ben Gavir and um, Smotrich who have, have now got roles with the Ministry of Defense and Police. Yeah, so it was Ben Gvir that said that um, he'd be more responsive to one Jewish mother crying than a thousand Palestinians. Um, you know, I think I, I don't think that that's helpful rhetoric. Uh, what we have to recognize, though, is that uh, the intensity of violence um, has been increasing sharply uh, for well over a year um, uh, during a time when uh, arguably you had a much more progressive government um, in place, trying to move forward on a number of things, uh, including being much more responsive to Arab-Israeli needs and so forth. The violence comes from, from many different sources. It reflects um, the deterioration of control on the part of the Palestinian Authority, uh, the rise of criminality, and really tribal warfare uh, between different, dif different families 
within the Arab community, even within Israel proper. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure that uh, we'll be able to make a very neat correlation between this government uh, and uh, an increase in violence. Uh, lots of other things are at play. Uh, but, you know, while there are emotional issues or, or, or emotional triggers to the issues that, that we've just been talking about for the first few minutes, those actually aren't the primary focus of the parties that um, we're speaking of. They have other agenda items. One of them does touch on the management of, of um, the occupation uh, in the territories, significant um, focus on the Supreme Court uh, and the idea of an override. You know, I'm not sure that prayer at the, at the wall is going to be the issue on which they're going to fall on their swords. I think that all of them uh, have very compelling reasons to want to ensure that some of these other policy issues are addressed uh, first and foremost. COGAP, the, the, the administration of the territories, is, is not an uncomplicated package of, of administration. And Israel doesn't do it in a vacuum. It does it with support from the U.S., uh, from the international community. Even Canada is directly involved in some of the security dimensions. So um, I think the latitude of a new government to move on all of these things um, is going to be far more compressed than uh, their rhetoric so far um, will say. And, and Ben is right. Uh, the, the parties that uh, Netanyahu has invited into the coalition um, have not very little. They have no trust um, in Netanyahu. Uh, and they look at his track record in terms of commitments made uh, and commitments honored. Uh, and they are rightly suspicious of him in that. This coalition is going into, into it um, with the absence of any trust. Uh, so it's not clear to me uh, what comes out of it. But the one last thing that I have to say, Ben, there is unanimity amongst the Jewish community. Uh, it may not be on specific policies, policies but so far we have um, an overwhelming majority of the Jewish community in Canada uh, and in the diaspora generally who are committed to the Jewish state, who believe in the Zionist project. And what they want to ensure is that it reflects the kind of big tent that allows everybody to feel a sense, not just of partnership, but of part ownership. And that's the paradox that we have. Outside, we're told that Israel is core to our identity, but we're not Israelis. We don't get to vote in elections. And it creates this gap between our respective understandings of the imperative of the day. Uh, and it's only going to lessen. Uh, if there's a genuine commitment, commitment by all stakeholders, not just us on the outside, but Israelis on the inside to ensure um, that there is that sensitivity and responsiveness. You know, I need to, I need to say that the, the unanimity is one, one thing, but we know that the impact on diaspora Jewry is huge and the anti-Semitism that's growing. I'm a former TVSB super, school superintendent and also the child of Holocaust survivor. So this is all very personal to me and um, it, it's affecting us deeply in Canada. So we are facing a, a very scary time because of the perceived, whether they actually happen or not, but we're, we're 
there it, it is in the talk as as Ben said when Rabbi Gilad Karif, who's a constitutional lawyer, also when he uh, when he says just the fact that it's being talked about is alienating, and it's certainly alienating. I can I know all sorts of of are here in Toronto that talked about going to Israel. Now they're saying, well, I don't think I want to go to Israel. Um, it is affecting us as Canadian Jews in so many ways in terms of our connection with Israel, our next generation. It's very scary. Uh, and, and the anti-Semitism that's being that's growing, and and if we have this de facto feeling of a annexation, it's just empowers the Palestinian, the pro-Palestinian, uh, you know, um, community that uh, is is increasing the anti-Semitism here in Toronto and and elsewhere. We should say I'm going to jump in there. There's nothing wrong with being pro-Palestinian. I think what you mean is the anti-Israel movement. No, no, it, yes, that, absolutely. It. it when it is anti-Israel, increases the anti-Semitism. I'm not going to be dismissive of um, the connection between things that happen here um, and spikes in anti-Semitism where they use Israel as, as sort of the collective or the proxy Jew for everybody. But it's, it's much more complex than that. What we're experiencing, whether in the public school system or universities or in society in general, um, is a lot of different dimensions uh, and um, um, evolution of anti-Semitism. So erasive anti-Semitism, which denies the Jewish people um, uh, the ability to um, define for themselves their lived experience, has nothing to do with Israel. It has to do with a very woke perception that Jews, by definition, cannot have experienced hate and discrimination because they're part of the oppressor class, the white privilege, uh, or at minimum adjacent white. There are definitely multiple sources, but Israel is one of them, as is, as you said, the woke that's happening, uh, which I'm very... Well, but Israel was one of it a year ago too. Um, and how do we reconcile that? Ben Gvir was not in power. He was, he was not even close to power. Uh, he was he was just a, a, a you know a wild man on the right. Um, it's messy all the way around. You bring up the word court, and I want to start talking about the reform of the court, the Knesset being over the override issue, the possibility that the Knesset will be able to override laws that are made or rulings that are made by the Supreme Court, which would I think correct me if I'm wrong, automatically absolve or dis- dismiss the corruption trial against Netanyahu. Yeah, it's 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 a huge concern. It's it's a it's uh, this is a hair on fire moment. We know from you know the, the Jewish community in Canada knows from fighting Jew, from fighting anti-Semitism, from fighting uh, extremists that take aim at our community. You have to take them at their word. When they say that they want to do something, they're going to try and do it, and you don't like give them the benefit of the doubt that they won't. And so Jewish extremists deserve the exact same sort of moral consistency. Let's take them at their word. And let's be concerned. And one of the things that um, I think we cannot wait to raise a moral voice against some of these major threats to democracy, because they're offering these things now as they do their coalition negotiations, and they will continue to jockey um, to prioritize the issues they want the most. They are looking for a reaction. Which of the issues they can get away with and which are where are they going to have to spend political capital now actually is some of the most important times to speak up about this. They're discussing a, a court override clause that... Look, it could unfold in many ways, Ellen. So actually, um, it could be a broad one. It could be broad, but have like limits like the notwithstanding clause in Canada has. Or it could be exceptionally narrow, say only 
uh, an override only on, say, issues of Jewish national identity, which is hugely problematic in its own right. Or maybe it's tailored to the corruption pieces. You know, like, um, it's, it's, it's very unlikely that some version of the override clause will not pass. It's just a question of when and what the extent it will be. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's um, part and parcel of broader legal reforms that the right wing has been asking, the right wing, the original religious uh, uh, settler camp, the religious parties have been agitating for for over a decade. We've been watching this very concerned and fighting against. News Our Fund has been funding projects, fighting this for, you know, along with Iraq and others, because it threatens to undo all of the yield signs, speed bumps, and stop signs in Israeli democracy um, over, say, protecting vulnerable populations, uh, protecting f- uh, foundational freedoms and rights. There isn't a charter of rights and freedoms in Israel. There isn't a constitutional level law. Like they, there are quasi constitutional laws, but it could take fifty percent plus one of any of any Knesset to change them to to change Israel's you know fundamental guiding principles. That is an incredibly weak constitutional system. It's not the same as making a comparison to Canada, the notwithstanding clause. Israel will go from being an embattled liberal democracy, an imperfect but embattled liberal democracy to a majoritarian democracy, which is uh, the government in power, whatever government it is at the time, will just get to do anything they want. There will be no stops on them running over people's rights, harming vulnerable populations. And when we say that they want to do that, we have to be, we have to take them at their word. And we have to say, no, that's crossing a red line. So Ben, it's not helpful, I don't think, for us to exaggerate what is being proposed. The reality is that many countries um, have been increasingly troubled by what they call um, activist courts and are trying to seek some kind of balance between the court interpreting law uh, and the court making law. There is a concept of being able to override something under certain conditions. Everybody who is debating this or proposing that kind of override, uh, which, by the way, I'm not in favor of and I don't think would be helpful. Um, but they're not talking about a simple majority. They're talking about a supermajority uh, that would be required. I think, Ben, it becomes problematic when they actually limit it in application to things because that may make it more palatable to people because say, well, it's not on everything, it's just on some things. But if we're talking about a point of principle, we have to be really concerned uh, about, you know, the thin edge of, of the wedge. For, uh, just, 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 just let me just add one other thing, because I know Ellen is always interested in the Canadian dimension. Um, I think we in Canada have a special concern about this. There has over a number of decades, and Erwin Koffler was instrumental in this, um, developed a very close and collaborative relationship uh, between the Israeli and the Canadian um, judicial systems. Um, uh, lots of work has been done, and in fact, Israel has looked to Canada as the model of the kind of constitution that they would like to translate their basic laws into. So I think that fundamental changes that challenge the independence and the integrity of the court um, will be viewed with even greater scrutiny and concern here in Canada. And I can tell you as, as, as you know, the lobbyists for uh, the pro-Israel community, um, one of our banners is trumpeting Israel's independent judiciary. Um, if that comes into question, 
it takes away an important dimension of the shared values between Canada and Israel. And so I circle back to the beginning. Um, it's not just about us. Uh, it's about how developments in Israel are going to impact on the bilateral and multilateral relationships that Israel has with others in the world. Shimon, I, I appreciate what you just said. <laughs> and, and it's important to keep in mind that Israel, they keep saying like Canada, but we have provinces, you know, we're a different system. They have one, one Knesset with very limited, really, separation between executive and, uh, and the legislative, I guess. And then the, and then the Supreme Court. And, and they have one riding, like we have all these ridings. They have like one riding. So um, it's, it's one, you know, electoral riding. It's a very different system. And so it's much more fragile. So I welcome what you're saying that we in Canada, and of course, I'm a strong supporter of Siege as well, that we in Canada would, would uh, react to any um, real over, taking over power, uh, threatening the Supreme Court in Israel. Okay, we just want to close with one more topic, if we can. There have been talk about how Israel's own population voted with their feet this time and they're moving to the more religious right. So maybe limiting beaches to same sex, turning off power on the weekends, and also talking about limiting LGBTQ rights and transgender rights, which Israel has now. So I would love you guys to just talk about what you're hearing from your communities about how worrisome this is. Can, can I jump in on one particular one as an educator? Um, the curriculum, the Haredi are saying they want the secular schools to have more Torah and Talmud study. And, and the, uh, we've been told that some of the mayors of the cities have said, no way we're going to allow that. We'll pay for curriculum ourselves. And the other thing is the Haredi are saying for their schools, they want more funding without any change to their core curriculum. And I'm sure we all know that they don't study math or science. And my background was in mathematics, so I care. But so, so it's, never mind the beaches, because if, if there's still some, you know, if there's proportional, and Netanyahu said, it'll be proportional to the population, whether they have segregated beaches. What about the women on the back of the bus? Iraq fought that and won, that women cannot be told they have to sit at the back of the bus. What about that? There's theory versus reality. It's such a silly issue, this um, segregated beach thing. But in principle, I go to Good Life Fitness in Canada. There are dedicated Good Life Fitnesses for women because they want them for, for whatever reasons um, they would feel more comfortable with it. Uh, again, I don't think that these are going to be the big issues. I'm going to actually um, surprise you and go at it from a, an entirely different way. The assumption is that the Haredi community is monolithic, that um, it is simply um, uh, being responsive to whatever this or that leader uh, declares is going to be their position. That's not the case anymore. Over the last, I'd say, 20 years, but certainly over the last 10 years, there has been an awakening within the Haredi community to deficits that they that are impacting on their quality of life. Uh, and there has been a huge movement, whether it's uh, inclusion in the IDF uh, with accommodations for their particular needs um, or increasing um, the scope of their curriculum to allow them to develop the tools to to be functioning and productive members of society. Poverty is an issue that is not going to be resolved simply by government handout. And there are Haredi 
organizations that are dedicated to giving agency to young Haredi, both students and young young adults, uh, in order to allow them to be empowered. Um, they're going to push back against this too. They already are. It doesn't attract the same attention because it's not it's not that dramatic kind of, of clash. But it's a good example of the kind of other consideration that I think is going to impact on the public policy process over the coming period because they're not going to want to lose the gains that they've achieved uh, in in having more choices, being more inclusive, uh, and mainstreaming into Israeli life. I'm actually going to pick up on that. I want to agree on that. Um, yeah, last word to you, Ben. The, the, the good news and the bad news is that Israel is divided 50-50 right down the middle on the question of democracy. Like this, you know, 50% uh, of Israelis in the last election, it was like 495 voted for the alternative government. It was sort of implicitly or explicitly in support of continued Jewish-Palestinian political partnership, you know, the participation of Arab political parties in the coalition. That's not insignificant. And when we look at the broader issues, we see these responses, like Miriam have pointed out, of local educational councils saying, like, you know, not in our schools. And it's, uh, Shimon is absolutely right that the Haredi community is not monolithic, and we fund projects in there of liberal Haredim who want, who are led by women who believe in women's rights and even ending the occupation, I might add. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of exciting things happening in Israeli um, civil society. Over the past four or five elections, the percentage of the Israeli population that was open to, willing to, happy with the idea of Arabs in government went from somewhere around 30%. The next election, it went up into the high 30s, then it went into the 40s, then it went into the 50s, then it crossed into a majority of Israelis are willing to consider, willing to accept Arab government in Israel, like a political partner. That is positive. That is great. And that is redef And then you look at the right wing, the center right, which is a part of the Never Bibi camp, Ruby Rivlin, Dan Meridor, Benny Begin, these are Likud princes who have been very vocal about, they are small d Democrats in opposing the changes to the, to the court, changes to democracy, handing power to extremists. The pro-democracy camp is bigger than just say like the peace camp or the left or merits and labor. And what we're looking at in Israel at the moment is the pro-democracy camp is coming into its own. The issue is crystallizing and the amount of activity, uh, pushback, and the amount of Israelis who are going to sort of like get off the fence about you know, the religious status quo. I think we're going to see, this is an important moment for building the movement in Israel. And the question for us is, what can we do here? We can support specific Israelis that are doing good things there. Supporting Israel means who are you going to support in Israel? Which Israelis are you going to put your money behind, your support behind, your, your voice behind? Every Jewish charity has always picked somewhere that it money, its money goes. So we should be asking, where is the money going? Where is Canadian Jewish philanthropy focused? And where will it be focused in, say, the, tw the next 5, 10, 20 years? Will it be going to help uh, strengthen the democratic core of Israel? Or are we going to see more of what we've seen now? And again, we have a couple of days and it may all fall apart and then we'll have to come back in three well, for days. Your, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> so have a happy Hanukkah, safe uh, trip in Israel. And thank you again for bringing these important points to the CJN Daily audience. Pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Nice to meet all of you. Thank you. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. Today's listener shout-out goes to Ricky Slipikoff of Toronto. 
And don't miss tomorrow's show. It's about a Canadian menorah maker who has never lit Hanukkah candles. Thanks for listening. The Dunfield Retirement Residence offers customized living options to complement your independent, active lifestyle. Welcome home. Welcome to the Dunfield. Visit us at thedunfield.com to book a personal tour.